Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello everyone and welcome to this evening's event, 70 Years in NATO, Turkey's Partnership with the Western Alliance since 1952. This event is co-hosted by the LSE Contemporary Turkish Studies and the European Institute. I'm Professor Yaprak Gursoy, and I'm the Chair of Contemporary Turkish Studies at the LSE European Institute. I'm delighted to be chairing this event today. When we first decided in early April to organize an event reflecting on Turkey's 70-year membership in NATO, perhaps none of us could have guessed how the subject would cover headlines in a matter of um, a few weeks. This was, of course, due to Ankara's announcement that Turkey might oppose NATO enlargement to Finland and uh, Sweden following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And within a couple of uh, weeks and days, the debate escalated to some even questioning Turkish membership in NATO altogether. Despite these recent developments, we still decided that we should cover Turkish membership in the Western Alliance since 1952, because any proper understanding of contemporary issues necessarily requires an understanding of how we got here, the historical context and the background. Thankfully, I'm joined here by three experts who are more than qualified to inform us of Turkey's partnership with the Western Alliance. Before I introduce the speakers, however, I have a few housekeeping announcements, so please bear with me. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is LSE Turkey. This event is being recorded and will hopefully be made into a podcast, of course, if we have no technical difficulties. Our event will consist of presentations from our speakers, followed by a Q&A with the audience. When we come to the Q&A uh, portion of our event, um, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. And um, so you can type your questions there and uh, I will um, receive your questions and I will pose as many questions as possible to our speakers. Uh, please do not forget to uh, let us know of your name and affiliation when you also write your question. Now uh, to introduce our speakers in order of speaking. Uh, first, we will have Genjer Özcan, who is a professor of international relations at Istanbul Bilgi University. His research concentrates on Turkish foreign and security policy, foreign policy analysis, and the Middle East. He will kick off our seminar by providing us with a brief overview of the first 50 years of Turkish membership in NATO. Oya Dursun Özkanca will be our second speaker. Um, she is the endowed chair of international studies and professor of political science at Elizabethtown College, USA. She is the author of um, Turkey-West Relations, the Politics of Intra-Alliance Opposition. Today, based on her book, she will reflect on the past 20 years from a Turkish perspective. Rich Olsen will be our third speaker. Rich is a geopolitical consultant and a retired, a retired colonel and foreign area officer who served in the U.S. State Department's policy planning staff. He served uh, also as an advisor to several secretaries of state in the U.S. Rich will discuss the last 20 years of Turkish membership in NATO, but from the perspective of um, the US and NATO. Uh, now I'm delighted to hand over to Genjar and uh, to begin his presentation. Um, thank you very much, Yaprak. I am um, very glad to be here, to be part of this event. And I would like to thank to all 
who contributed to the organization of this uh, meeting. And in Turkey, uh, like the British in um, the Britain, United Kingdom, we celebrate the platinum jubilee of Turkey's membership to NATO. And in that regard, uh, um, I'll be uh, I'm going to make um, seven points to highlight the evolution of Turkey's relations with NATO. And uh, I hope that uh, these points will provide some insights to understand the present state of relations between NATO and Turkey. So my observations will roughly follow uh, the evolutionary trajectory of the relationship and will focus on the impact of NATO's membership on Turkey's politics. So in doing so, I will critically engage Turkey's membership in NATO to point out that despite its weight over Turkish armed forces, the organization became instrumental in the making of the national security state in which the military became pivotal uh, agency, the pivotal agency. The first point, the first observation, my first observation is that neither politicians nor laymen on the street differentiate NATO from the United States. This is a plain observation and very uh, general observation, and it, it, it is still uh, uh, prevailing in Turkish politics. The two have always been identified as one. Identification of NATO with the United States caused uh, manifold of questions, manifold questions, but any problem that Turkey is having with the United States is perceived as a problem with NATO or a problem that NATO should sort out. This is the first thing I would like to mention. And second point I would like to make that Turkey's membership to NATO was an outcome of changing threat perceptions of the United States rather than the willingness of the ruling parties in Turkey. As soon as it became into being in 1949, uh, NATO became an object of desire for all uh, major parties in Turkey. The period before Turkey joined NATO in 1952 coincided with the transition to multi-politics in the country. So both parties aimed to get Turkey into NATO. However, the membership became possible only after global global power trans configuration went through a substantial transformation. Uh, first, the Chinese revolution, the end of U.S. nuclear monopoly, and the Korean War. These important uh, developments led uh, or opened the way uh, for the Turkey's uh, members. Uh, not only Turkey's members, of course, the Greece also uh, became member uh, together with the together with Turkey. The third point I would like to make is that the NATO has always been perceived as an agency for the modernization of the army and of the society. NATO eagerly assumed and played an important role in the transformation of Turkey's infrastructure and the improvement of the military manpower in line with the requirements of the market economy in Turkey. Admission to, to NATO meant a lot for the young officers who were frustrated by the oppressive practices of the older generations of generals known to be Prussians. They welcomed the younger officers, uh, welcomed the membership, and sold the membership as a window of opportunity for their fast-track promotion. So this created uh, um, uh, an interesting implications or fallouts for the coming decades, uh, for the decades to come. And this uh, brings me to, the, to, to my fourth point. Although indirectly, NATO played a significant role in Turkish politics. First and foremost, NATO remained aloof 
when the Turkish armed forces formed their fully-fledged national security state in Turkey, the Turkish armed forces asked that the most pro-NATO government in May 1960, being defined as an organization of like-minded, free, and democratic states, NATO never problematized the militarization of the state in Turkey. In that regard, NATO has never been interested in the democratic backslide Turkey often went through. Neither politicians in Washington nor generals in Brussels ever seemed to have worried about the way top brass of NATO's second largest army interfered in politics in Turkey. Instead, generals declared their loyalty to the alliance when they seized the power using the same password. We remain loyal to NATO and CENTO. The, uh, the fifth uh, observation that I'm going to make is that NATO slash United States has become part and parcel of all political debates prevailing in 1960s and 1970s. In the latter part of the 1960s, NATO membership and Turkey's relation with the United States were questioned by all influential sociopolitical movements. NATO was perceived as the stumbling block on the way to Turkey's development and prosperity. Arguments such as Turkey cannot remain independent unless it leaves NATO was the leitmotif of the prevailing political discourse of the late 1960s. Such arguments made inroads into universities as well as military garrisons. At the turn of the 70s, a considerable number of young officers were in favor of Turkey's withdrawal from NATO. Interestingly enough, the source of inspiration for the young officers was the Baathist officers who came to power in several Middle Eastern countries. The, their coup um, uh, plotted by young officers was foiled by pro-NATO junta that forced the incumbent government to resign in March 1971. The sixth observation that I'm going to make about the um, Turkey-NATO relations uh, 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 is that the, with the exception of the first decade of Turkey's membership, public perceptions of NATO have always been very negative and low. There are several factors at play here. Starting in 1960, anti-American, anti-NATO debates are exacerbated by Turkey's problems with Greece over Cyprus. These problems never reached a comprehensive agreement, but NATO, NATO has so far played a significant role in preventing the two members of the alliance involved in a military conflict. Seventh point that I would like to uh, make, and this is going to be my last point, Turkey's position within NATO went through a substantial change after the Cold War. This happened because Turkey had already begun uh, to adapt itself to the new threat environment of the post-Cold War period. During the Cold War, the major asset Turkey provided NATO was its geographical location. And Turkey's contribution, to use economic jargon, was labor-intensive, providing cheap uh, labor to NATO. However, throughout the 1990s, Turkish armed forces learned bitter lessons from the asymmetrical warfare it involved within and without its borders. Plus, procured new platforms such as, such as AWACS and tanker planes, improved its power projection capabilities, and transformed its colossal army into an 
expeditionary force. Since the turn of the century, Turkey's added value to NATO, NATO's out-of-area operations, went beyond labor-intensive contributions. So the questions as to where Turkey is located to a great extent lost its significance. But we are still far away from the alliance that might ask brave questions to its members if their democratic credentials are in compliance with universal principles. With this uh, uh, point, I would uh, like to uh, finish my talk. So nine minutes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was really that was quite good. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, over to you, uh, Oya. Thank you very much, Yaprak. Uh, so I am uh, really honored to be in front of this distinguished audience. And it really comes to a full circle for me because the idea of the first book that I authored on Turkey-West relations came uh, when I was a visiting fellow at London School of Economics in 2013. So it's a privilege to be here. And as you mentioned, I, I was charged to talk about the last 20 years of the Turkey-NATO relations. And Turkey really, uh, because of the fact that it is geostrategically located uh, between Europe, Middle East, Balkans, Mediterranean, Black Sea, South Caucasus, it really uh, serves a significant strategic importance for the transatlantic alliance. And as Professor Özcan has uh, skillfully summarized, you know, during the Cold War, Turkey has been well embedded in Western security infrastructures. Uh, however, um, uh, you know, this is despite a few periods of unease, of course, that were, that was discussed earlier. And um, Turkey over the last uh, decade or so has started to adopt a number of proactive and anti-Western foreign policies. Uh, scarcely a day passes when uh, without a report or a headline on the front pages of the leading newsletters, uh, newspapers questioning Turkey's reliability as a Western ally. So how did we get here was the question that I asked in my book, first book, Turkey-West Relations. And uh, uh, what I have done was I have conducted over 200 elite interviews with the policymakers, members of parliament and, uh, uh, and journalists and scholars uh, in, in a variety of different countries. And um, I, I started to notice certain patterns. Uh, so uh, to give you some examples, Turkey-US relations over the course of these last couple of years have been very tense over the US support for the Syrian Kurds in the fight against the Islamic State terrorist organization uh, over the extradition issue of Fethullah Gülen, uh, whom uh, the Turkish authorities implicate uh, behind the failed coup attempt back in July 2016. Um, Turkey has been also disappointed on the EU front over the lack of progress uh, over its accession negotiations and visa liberalization talks. And on top of it all, Turkey has uh, experienced a rapprochement with uh, Russia, particularly over energy, defense, and security issues, which uh, further deepened the rift between Turkey and its uh, NATO allies. So um, this is the framework that I used in my book. Um, I came up with three different processes of uh, intra-alliance opposition using the soft balancing literature as a starting point. And uh, boundary testing is where the allies uh, 
try to learn what the acceptable norms of behavior are and what are the red lines not to be crossed. In boundary challenging, the second process, uh, the allies are uh, having some disagreements, but still signaling their willingness to work from within the alliance. And in process number three, boundary breaking, uh, you have the allies increasingly, uh, increasingly signaling to the rest of the allies that they are willing to uh, uh, position themselves against the other allies from outside of the alliance. So uh, these are the three processes. And at any time, uh, the processes can be reverted back. So it is not a deterministic type of a thing. And as you can see with the Venn diagram here, there are a lot of uh, convergences between the different tools of statecraft that I have classified based on the intensity of the intra-alliance opposition behavior. So in the book, I used a few uh, case studies uh, that would take us from uh, 2010 to 2019. And you can see the intensity of the tools of uh, statecraft that was employed by Turkey vis-a-vis uh, -vis the uh, transatlantic allies, uh, you can see that the intensity has, uh, there is a trend to be identified and the intensity is increasing uh, with more and more boundary breaking type of tools of statecraft that are being used against the Western allies, meaning the United States, European Union and NATO. Uh, time and again, two issues have haunted Turkey's relations with the NATO allies uh, in the last couple of years. And those include one, Syria, and secondly, the S-400 missile defense system issue. Uh, the first one is Turkish authorities uh, with regards to Syria have repeatedly brought up their complaints about the other NATO allies not taking Turkey's security concerns uh, seriously, uh, especially with regards to supporting the terrorist groups that threaten Turkey's national security. And since 2014, for instance, the United States has relied on YPG, uh, People's Protection Units, uh, Kurdish militants, in the fight against the Islamic State, despite strong objections from the Turkish authorities over and over again. Uh, so we have seen the Turkish authorities making the arguments that uh, YPG is an extension, an organic extension of the PKK terrorist organization, which is recognized as a terrorist organization, not only by Turkey, but also by the European Union and uh, NATO country countries as well. Um, in May 2017, we have seen the US-Turkey relationship reaching its nadir uh, when the top advisor to Turkish uh, President Erdogan threatened that Turkish rockets may target U.S. forces in northern Syria if their collaboration with the Kurdish fighters along the Turkish border continues. So here you see the threat to use force, which is going from the territory of soft balancing, which is balancing between allies and friends, into hard balancing area where you use military uh, uh, means in order to balance against your counterpart. So that's that was very interesting and it triggered 
a variety of Syrian interventions by the Turkish military has triggered a number of different sanctions against Turkey by the NATO allies, notably Katsa sanctions, uh, countering America's adversaries through Sanctions Act uh, is the one that the Congress approved. Uh, and then Trump administration just before, shortly uh, before leaving office, started to implement symbolically at least. Uh, the Czech Republic, Finland, Netherlands, Norway, Spain, Sweden, uh, they imposed full arms embargoes over Turkey. And uh, France, Italy uh, did some partial embargoes and Germany uh, suspended its plans to sell certain uh, engines for manufacturing an indigenously built Turkish battle tank. So these are a few examples where the relationship really went off the tracks uh, in terms of, uh, you know, soft balancing over to the territories of hard balancing uh, briefly. And Turkey recently uh, announced, as we all know, its intention to launch yet another military intervention over the uh, uh, border uh, to Syria to create safe zones. And they declared, the Turkish authorities declared about 30 kilometers long uh, safe borders um, uh, focusing on Tal Rufat and uh, Mambij areas. Um, second haunting issue for Turkey-NATO relations has been the S-400 issues. Um, the purchase of that, uh, the agreement to purchase that back in 2017 between Turkey and Re Russia raised a lot of questions as to whether Turkey is really making this uh, shift in its defense posture towards Russia and uh, created an Another major rift. This wasn't without a precedent, just so everybody knows. Back in 2013, Turkey declared that they would purchase um, a missile defense system from a Chinese company. Uh, but because of the uh, pressures from the NATO allies, Turkish authorities at the very last moment said, okay, we are putting a moratorium on our research for missile defense systems. And um, NATO allies, this time around, when the uh, deal was broken, between Turkey and Russia uh, brought uh, to the forefront a number of issues, including integration, compatibility issues, and the possibility of Russian intelligence infiltration into the NATO system systems. And they also said that this undermines the Connected Forces Initiative of NATO, which aims to enhance the interconnectedness and interoperability between the allies. So in response to those criticisms, the Turkish authorities said, OK, we are not going to integrate the uh, S-400s into the NATO defense systems, uh, so they will coexist separately. And Turkey was first suspended uh, from its participation in the F. 35 uh, Joint Strike Fighter Consortium, and then removed completely. Turkey was also in process of uh, acquiring 100 F-35s. And on top of it all, Turkey was a, a founding member of this consortium. And Turkish production defense industries were going to be heavily involved in the manufacturing stages of the F-35s as well. So with that, with the removal of Turkey from this consortium, Turkish defense uh, um, industry really took a significant blow with the potential revenue loss of billions of dollars. And uh, what we have seen uh, uh, by the Turkish authorities since then is that Turkish authorities indicated their willingness to acquire 40 um, fourth generation F-16 Block 70s and 80 modernization kits to uh, update uh, its aging fleet. 
And Turkish request went into the US Congress two months ago. And just last month, the Biden administration indicated its support uh, for that uh, transfer to be made. Um, so certain factors can be identifiable in the uh, in intensified intra-alliance opposition behavior by Turkey. One is the systemic variables uh, and the regional subsystemic variables. International system is changing. We are seeing multipolarity now with the uh, US being challenged by additional uh, actors globally. And also in the uh, subsystemic level at the regional level with the EU and its crises. Um, so we have seen Turkey identifying a window of opportunity for reasserting itself, maybe to be um, recognized as a, a regional uh, hegemon or a global player. Uh, Turkey certainly indicated its willingness to be treated as an equal actor, equal partner to the NATO allies. And the second factors can be uh, determined as uh, regional factors once again, the, um, the irreconcilable differences between Turkey and and the NATO allies on Syria, Cyprus, Libya, maritime delimitation, hydrocarbon explorations in the region, and the subsequent lack of trust and the distrust that it has created. Uh, so uh, we see, we continuously see, for instance, just uh, this week, the tensions in the Eastern Mediterranean rising up, creating further anxieties. And thirdly, domestic factors, economic as well as political factors are influential here with the rising anti-Americanism, uh, not so much with Euroscepticism, but still rising anti-Americanism. According to latest polls, about 58% of the Turkish public opinion sees US as a, uh, as a security threat, as uh, Professor Özcan also referred to in his comments. So uh, we see the democratic backsliding creating increased rift between Turkey and its NATO allies, and the composition uh, of the Turkish military has changed significantly in the post-2016 coup attempt and the purges that we have seen uh, subsequently. And the upcoming 2023 uh, elections have certainly created this perfect storm where Turkey wants to further pursue this anti-Kurdish sentiments uh, in the public opinion in order to be able to uh, see uh, some benefits from the um, uh, from the uh, some benefits yeah. from yeah oh, oh yeah i will ask you to wrap up now uh, yes by all means so let me uh, wrap up in a very brief uh, uh, manner so we see the russian invasion of ukraine creating this wonderful opportunity for turkey to uh, present itself as a reliable NATO ally, and we see the Turkish uh, foreign policy playing a very uh, uh, threading a fine line uh, between Russia and Ukraine uh, while continuously selling drones to Ukraine and uh, continuously supporting uh, Ukraine uh, with the implementation of the Montreux Convention uh, in terms of the passage to the Black Sea, and also against the background of a looming global food crisis Turkey once again emerges as a very important ally. Uh, I didn't have a chance to talk about the veto of the Finnish and the oh, Swedish yeah, oh, applications, yeah, but, uh, but we can do yeah, it later. I mean, I think it would be better um, to, you know, um, have a second round where we talk yes. about more um, contemporary issues. Uh, thank you very much uh, for that uh, overview.
Um, and uh, Rich, uh, I think uh, the, the speakers covered uh, quite a lot, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, there's still a lot more uh, to say. Uh, so uh, over to you. Well, thank you. It, what a pleasure uh, to sit and to listen, uh, to listen to some really great ideas and great analysis from two real experts in this area. And uh, it's good to refresh some ground that I've lived through as a practitioner of policy, uh, but also to, to get some fresh ideas. So thank you both to, to Genjer and to Oya. Uh, I, so my take on this is interesting. I'm an American who's been responsible for po policy decisions uh, or at least uh, working on policy decisions for about 10 years. Um, I was a colonel in the U.S. Army. I was what's called a foreign area officer. So I specialized in the Middle East. Uh, and that, that starts back in 1989, 1990 timeframe. I was uh, there for the Persian Gulf War. I was there for the second Iraq War, Afghanistan. And a lot of the time I spent was working together with Turkey. So many of my views on Turkey's role in NATO and the relationship between the U.S., NATO, the West, and Turkey uh, are informed by those experiences. So uh, I was in Erzurum, Turkey in 1990 and 1991 at a time when we still had nuclear weapons to deter the Soviet Union from coming to attack NATO. I was in Ankara from 2001 to 2003 as we tried to shape a new NATO and, and a new sort of bilateral consensus at the same time that the Iraq war was breaking open and things were very much changing both in Turkey and in the world. And then my third sort of window was as uh, an American liaison officer in Afghanistan working with the Turks as the American representative to a Turkish brigade working in, in Eastern Kabul. So what, and, and these were all, you know, NATO was woven through all of this and the Western relationship. And I take Ginger's point that it's U.S. and NATO are, are, are sort of uh, interchangeable in this conversation, but I'm going to sort of be a little bit uh, sort of independent in, in saying that I think that the distinction might be more valuable now than it ever has been in the past 30 years, because things have become so locked up and so calcified in U.S. policy towards Turkey, that working primarily through NATO uh, as a vehicle to provide uh, synergy between the two is, is a better, better chance now than, than solving the problems bilaterally. So the first question posed to me was, um, how has the U.S. and NATO approached Turkey within the alliance since 2000? We, we got a great historical explication of everything that happened uh, since NATO accession in 1952 for Turkey. And you know, basically the story there is that once the Russians started threatening, which they did, and, and people sometimes forget that the early Turkish Republic had a very good relationship with the early Soviet Union. Uh, that changed after the Soviet Union became uh, sort of dominant on the Eastern Front. They started threatening Turkey over the three Eastern provinces and over the, the Straits, and that propelled Turkey into NATO. And that started a great period of synergy. Uh, and I think Genjer has covered that very well. But that all changed with the fall of the Soviet Union. When there was no common threat, this loss of a common threat in 1991 with the fall of the Soviet Union was, was a, a life-changing experience for Turkey and NATO and the relationship between the U.S. and NATO and Turkey. The second thing is that uh, NATO started looking for this, a search for out-of-area missions. So they started finding if Russia was not the primary threat or the Soviet Union, what does NATO do now? And people who were working this relationship back then remember that this was a big conversation. How does NATO become relevant out of area? Uh, the third was an ideological shift. We had this uh, Cold War ideological laydown that worked for the US and it worked for Turkey, where we had the free world and Turkey was considered part of the free world. 
and we had the the totalitarian world, and that was essentially China and the Soviet Union and everybody who was under their yoke. After 1990 and 91, we we shifted a little bit, and then it became a conversation between democratization and authoritarianism, and that worked for us for about 10 years or or 12 years uh, as a unifying concept. But as Turkey became uh, how should we, shall we say a little bit more conservative in in the AKP era? This became a real source of friction because Turkey was now on the other side of the ideological barrier where they had been on the right side of the ideological barrier during the entirety of the Cold War. By the way, I'm a geopolitical thinker, so I'm not a big fan of what the U.S. did there. You know, the U.S. essentially tried to say we get to define what democracy is and we get to say who is on the right side of it and on the wrong side of it. And we're still struggling with how that plays out. Um, the fourth thing was globalization and, and the devaluation of local uh, geopolitical factors. The United States essentially went with the Fukuyama thesis that we're at the end of history. The, everything wants to converge on one ideological, one economic, one political model. Local varieties don't matter. So all the local things that mattered to Turkey, such as, well, you know, the, the uh, relationships with the Arabs, relationships with the Kurds, the unique positioning with regards to Russia, that means that you know, Turkey has to make some hedging bets that other European countries and Western countries don't have to do. This was thrown out the window because the idea was you're either with us or against us because we're all converging on this one view. And, and the fifth thing was the power shift within Turkey, which is to say that Turkish relations with NATO in the West from 1942 through 2000 and I'll say seven or eight were conditioned by Turkish weakness. And, and by that, I mean that Turkey, Turkey had a, it had a democracy, but it was a very dysfunctional multi-party democracy that suffered through multiple coups and a real, I mean, street fighting in the late seventies, people tend to forget this in the United States, near civil war conditions. The three coups were not just Emrivaki, they were not just arbitrary. It was because the political system was breaking down. So Turkey was politically dysfunctional. It was economically punching under its weight and geopolitically it was an important, stable anchor for NATO, but it was not strong enough to have an independent foreign policy. All of this changed as a result of, uh, and this is not the AKP's doing, this is a result of reforms pursued, be, uh, pursued before the AKP and followed through on the, the AKP and also technological changes. But by as we go from 2000 to 2010, 2015, we see a very different Turkey, one that tripled its per capita GDP, one that became much more lethal um, in terms of military capacity. And one thing that I'll say out of this, this might generate some questions or be a little uh, controversial, but as someone who worked with the Turkish military in 1991, 2001, 2003, and again, 2009, 2000, and I will tell you that the Gulen uh, sort of the, the battle for institutions within Turkey between the Gulenist movement, which was trying to establish its control for, at certain times in conjunction with AKP and certainly after that against AKP was a cancer within the Turkish military. The struggle for the control of the Turkish military rendered it much less effective. And there's lots to not like about how the human rights aspects of the, of the trials and what happened after that. I mean, really it was an ugly situation that unfolded in 2015, 16 and so forth. And I am, I, for one, am, am one of those who believes the Gulen movement was behind the attempted coup in Turkey. But I'm just going to say that as a military practitioner, what that meant was that for 20 years, you had a civil war within the Turkish military. That meant that the Turkish military was rendered ineffective in terms of external operations. It really was weaker in terms of its NATO missions. That all changed 
and again, we, we can talk about human rights standards, standards of justice, incarcerations, how long that goes. But there is no doubt that the Turkish military is now subordinated to, uh, subordinated to uh, political control, and it is a more effective regional player than it had been. So what does that mean with regards to NATO? That, that means that um, defense industrial co- uh, cooperation has gone down because Turkey's trying to develop its own stuff, doesn't need to buy from the UK or from the US or from Germany like it used to. And this decreases Western uh, sort of leverage over Turkey in terms of its foreign policy. And yet we see that Turkey has still been willing, even though it, it uh, diverges from the U.S. and from NATO in many things, on core missions off of its borders, Turkey is in. And by that, I mean, for instance, Afghanistan. And we can go back further into the 90s and look at Bosnia and Somalia and Kosovo. Also, institutionally, Turkey is invested in NATO. Turkey wants to fill its billets. Turkey supports the NATO mission. It also wants to deter Russia, even though it has a a pragmatic relationship with Russia and other guards over trade. So it's this very strange situation where Turkey does not, and and I'd like to suggest that there's a a way to conceptualize this uh, in terms of concentric circles. Everything that regards NATO and the Western orientation of Turkey, the further you get away from Turkey, the more it works. Turkey wants a liberal international order off of its own borders. It does not necessarily want this in its own country and because there's some complications there and the struggle between democratization and authoritarianism is still ongoing. And it's a complicated story also on its borders because of the PKK threat, which is a very real terrorist uh, threat and a very real, in my view, and a very real threat to the territorial integrity of the country and to the citizens of the country. This means that liberal rules, liberal international rules don't apply on the borders and in the near zones in Iraq and Syria that are part of the sort of conflictual post-Cold War order. Yet, as we go to Africa, as we go to Central Asia, as we go to Afghanistan, these are places where Turkey essentially wants the same thing as the rest of the West and the United States and Europe. It wants a liberal international order, at least some version of that. So um, let me wrap this up, because I, I, I know I could talk about this stuff forever by saying that it's complicated Turkey's an imperfect partner for the West. That's always been the case. It's a different civilizational model, and it has very specific concerns in terms of its uh, security, including the PKK, that the rest of Europe has a problem appreciating and doesn't really take in the same sense that the Turks do. And yet what we find in the case of Ukraine, but also Afghanistan and also Libya and also the Caucasus, is that Turkey is better a partner with whom we have to work through difficult problems than an adversary or someone we kick out. And I find it so irresponsible and so sort of implausible when people in the West, especially in Washington, D.C., say they are not a partner, we should kick them out of NATO. It's the most ridiculous thing in the world. This is a country with increasing weight economically, geopolitically, and militarily. They can be part of the solution from a Western perspective. It means making some compromises. And I think those compromises need to be done. What can be done differently? In the case of the United States, we need to stop sort of indexing all of our uh, foreign policy decisions with Turkey to our, our domestic political debate. And believe me, Republicans and Democrats both can find reasons to bash Turkey, and they both have. And yet I, I think that there's still pragmatic deals that can be done together with Turkey, including in the Ukraine, the grain quarter. I, I think the talks today didn't go all that well, but you know that's still something we're pursuing, that Turkey's pursuing that we're both interested in. Again, Libya, Central Asia, Africa, places where we don't want the Russians to dominate, 
We don't want the Chinese to dominate, but we don't care enough to actually go solve those problems ourselves or to invest a large amount of energy. We need to find some hard deals with Turkey. And we're not going to, we're not, we're not going to look at Turkey at any point and say, this is exactly the model of domestic governance we want. And we're not that we're exactly comfortable with what's going on in your borders because Greece and the, uh, some of the Kurdish issues and the Armenian issues because of our own domestic politics, we will have some friction on those. But I would submit, and this will be my final comment until we get to questions, that the United States has lost a skill that we had uh, during the Cold War. Because believe me, if you look back at the history of Cyprus, 1974, 1975, that, that whole period, we had big disagreements, but we had a skill for working through them that involved a little bit of compromise on things that we were quite certain our, our Turkish partners were wrong on, but we realized their weight meant we had to compromise on. We've lost that skill. And as a result, the, the stress level within the relationship is very high. I think both for NATO and NATO's and the UK especially have been a little more adult on this than Washington. And for Washington itself, we need to find a new synthesis to make that work like it did in the cold. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you very much, and thank you um, to all of the speakers. Um, a lot of food uh, for um, thoughts. And, um, it, it has been a very comprehensive overview uh, of relations as well. Um, I already see uh, questions in the um, Q&A, so please uh, continue to uh, ask your questions. And you can also vote the questions up and down, and um, that would also um, make it easier for me to sort the questions as well. But first, I would like to use my privilege as the chair um, and ask the speakers and um, because Oya was already getting into it and uh, reached towards the end as well. Um, so I would like to ask you to comment uh, a bit uh, on the recent developments. So as we said at the beginning of the seminar, Turkey-NATO relations took an interesting and perhaps an unexpected uh, turn with Russia's war in Ukraine. So I would like to ask each of you to briefly address how you think uh, Turkey's partnership with NATO has evolved with the war in Ukraine. So we can start with Genjar and follow the same uh, order. Okay. Um, okay, of course, the war was, um, the, the, to a certain extent, uh, uh, unexpected. And uh, the, the, uh, the also, uh, rather than the beginning of the war, the way that the war unfolded was unexpected because many experts was expecting a quick uh, 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 and crushing victory on the part of Russia. And the, 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 the collapse of the Ukrainian army on defense uh, 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 would uh, not stand against the Russian uh, invasion. But uh, these things did not happen. And then we all of a sudden, we have a different situation and then it turned out to be a war of attrition. So in that regard, in that regard uh, the, the, the Turkey uh, uh, was having relations with both sides and told that, uh, you know, they can sustain uh, the uh, uh, the, the, the policies that having good relations or having relations with both sides 
uh, uh, continue, but uh, I think that uh, this is uh, going to be a sort of problematic for Turkey uh, because uh, uh, this uh, issue, I mean, another unexpected issue that the Finnish and the Swedish application for the NATO membership uh, became a, a major problem for Turkey because Turkey vetoed. So this is uh, um, another unexpected decision. And uh, uh, but this is going to... Uh, uh, I do not think that this is going to uh, bring about positive uh, results for Turkey uh, because uh, the Turkey's policy, uh, 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 you know, the balancing policy uh, uh, on uh, on the issue is not sustainable, and probably probably Turkey is going to make a sort of U-turn, uh, the uh, compromise on its position. And uh, I do not, I don't know, the, I don't know what's going to. I mean, to be honest with you, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. One thing is uh, obvious. That I would like to uh, uh, highlight here is that the decisions should not be, I mean, the negotiations should be uh, conducted, should be conducted at lower levels. And uh, uh, of course, uh, the President Erdogan could make, could have made uh, in a different uh, statement, uh, but uh, made a very strict uh, um, uh, statement and somehow locked all the, uh, you know, the bureaucrats, diplomats on working at the lower level. So, I mean, the, uh, the room to uh, maneuver, the room to compromise is very narrow now uh, uh, for Turkey, for the diplomats, for those who are involved in the negotiations. And the, uh, the, the, the demands uh, uh, made by uh, Turkey is, uh, uh, to a certain extent, unacceptable for at least for Sweden. And then we also uh, uh, witnessed that the Turkey began to change its demands, I mean, dropping some of the demands. And also we, are, we, we have seen that, you know, the demands, the list of demands are not well calculated, are not well studied. And uh, for instance, like asking an Iranian uh, uh, origin, uh, I mean, uh, and asking, you know, the, uh, the extradition of uh, people who are dead, extradition of people who are not the citizens of Turkey, etc. Et These are uh, something that, uh, I mean, uh, 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 telling us that we are not before a well-calculated, well-prepared uh, um, policy uh, about, about, uh, about Sweden. And in that regard, as I said, Turkey, of course, has every right uh, to raise some questions uh, 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 using its uh, uh, capacity, its powers, uh, to say yes or no uh, to a membership uh, uh, application. It's, of course, I mean, for instance, let's take the case of Greece, and Greece said no to Macedonia for years, only for, uh, for, for, the, for the naming of the country. And Turkey is also having the same rights, but I mean, the way that we conduct, the way that we uh, proceed, with the way that we I mean, put forward our, our ideas, our policies, is not uh, uh, is not very I would say constructive and uh, productive. So this is something else, and to, uh, this is something uh, very important. And the uh, one thing I would like to add that uh, uh, this is uh, a kind of framework in which uh, uh, I can uh, formulate my views about the, the uh, AK Party's foreign policy. That uh, uh, you know the Erdogan's foreign policy, AK Party's uh, uh, foreign policy is a. Uh, um, seems to be a policy of foreign policy of survival, right? Because the 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 in in in, uh, in regional politics in the north, in the south, in the Middle East, uh, uh, the Turkey's maneuver 
uh, Turkey's room to maneuver in is becoming narrower and narrower. So, I mean, now we are trying to normalize our relations with Egypt, with Israel, with Saudi Arabia, with the Emirates. But uh, uh, the normalization, of course, in one way or another, we are going to, quote-unquote, normalize our relations. But this normalization wouldn't mean or wouldn't mean that we are going to back to the normal, say, uh, at the, uh, uh, you know, 10 years ago, that the normal that we were in 10 years ago. So the normal will be a new normal. And I do not think, and uh, I, I'm afraid the new normal is not something that to the like of the apartheid administration. So for the timing, this is what I'm going to say about. Great, thank you very much. Um, Oya, um, five minutes. Sure, thank you. <laughs> Sorry about the overextended no uh, remarks. I get overly excited, as can be told uh, from the screen. In any case, I was uh, I just want to uh, talk about the recent developments with regards to Ukraine and, uh, you know, what was once regarded as a liability for the Western alliance, the rapprochement between Turkey and the West, uh, sorry, Turkey and Russia, uh, we can see in this particular case, the Turkish authorities really want to thread this fine line between uh, Russia and Ukraine on the other hand. And Turks have been very supportive of the possibility of a, a Ukrainian accession into NATO, uh, have been very critical for years uh, in terms of Russian uh, treatment of the Crimean Tatars and the continued drone sales uh, to the Ukrainian government, which really helped give some tactical advantage uh, over uh, Russian uh, advances, you know, uh, we have seen some uh, really positive uh, positives on that front and also Turkey's willingness to implement the Montreux uh, uh, Convention as well. Um, having said that, you know, throughout this continued, uh, you know, rapprochement between Turkey and Russia, especially in terms of defense and security issues, I make a case that, you know, you may reach a certain point in time where reverting back will not be possible anymore. So it is a very path-dependent procedure. Um, uh, once you really corner yourself so much that uh, you really block all possible means of getting uh, arms um, uh, equipment, defense industry equipment from the Western allies, that you will have very limited options that you can pursue for acquiring these uh, uh, you know, materials from non-Western partners, right? So this is going to put Turkey into a very difficult uh, position is what I argued, especially with regards to the S-400 issues, because it really creates this uh, path dependency for uh, Turkey. At the same time, uh, we can say, uh, we can see that this invasion really created a very centralized importance for Turkey in the transatlantic relations, like I was uh, saying about the Black Sea global food uh, crisis, uh, grain export blockage, uh, uh, the importance of really uh, putting an end to Russian aggression because it is also in the immediate neighborhood of Turkey as well. So there are certain common interests, as Rich has pointed out, to, that can be identified, that can really uh, get the Turks and the NATO allies together to cooperate on these important issues. And uh, I argue that the war in Ukraine represents a wake-up call for Turkey that uh, uh, made Turkey recognize the importance of the transatlantic alliance because 
um, Turkey and Russia do not see eye to eye on any issues, actually, but uh, they still continue to cooperate, right? Or from Libya to Syria to uh, Ukraine, they do not see eye to eye with each other at all. So um, it is important to remember and remind ourselves that deeply rooted uh, alliance ties cannot be replaced by the transactional day-to-day, you know, manipulation of relations uh, that we have been seeing between Turkey and Russia. Hence, NATO alliance is of crucial importance for Turkish foreign policy, I argue. And at the same time, I would like to make a point on the uh, Swedish and the Finnish uh, application for uh, for NATO and the threat uh, from Turkey to veto those applications. Uh, NATO is based on unanimity decision-making process when it comes to accession of new member states. And uh, we have seen um, uh, this is completely in contradiction with the Turkey's overall open-door policy when it comes to NATO accession. So Turkey has been a very fervent, uh, very adamant uh, supporter of NATO expansion. And uh, this, we see a reversal of that. And in fact, according to the Turkish president's office statement that was released recently, Sweden and Finland should make it clear that they have stopped supporting terrorism, have lifted defense air export restrictions on Turkey and are ready to show alliance solidarity. So you can see certain trends here reverting back to the framework of intra-alliance opposition that I talked about. Uh, entangling diplomacy is what the Turks are using here uh, through the use of rules and procedures of international institutions. They try to influence their counterparts' foreign policies. In this case, both Sweden, uh, mostly Sweden, uh, to a certain extent Finland, and to a certain extent the US policies as well. Uh, so, uh, But it is still within the realm of boundary testing, I would argue, because all signaling indicates that they are interested in continuing, like ultimately giving the green light. Uh, this is what uh, Jens Stoltenberg uh, has been saying, uh, the NATO Secretary General, for instance. Second issue that I would like to bring up is the issue linkage bargaining statecraft uh, tool. Uh, which is in an intersection of boundary testing and boundary breaking, actually. So uh, issue linkage uh, bargaining uh, by simultaneously discussing two or more issues for joint settlement, the country aims to increase the possibility of reaching a negotiated agreement. Uh, So you can see that uh, they are saying, you know, uh, get rid of the arms embargo and we will give you the green light. Sell us those uh, F-16s and the AD modernization kits and we will give the green light. So you see issue bargaining, uh, issue linkage bargaining at play here. Um, If the stakes on the future of the alliance are higher, then we classify it as the boundary breaking realm. But I believe that it is simply in the boundary testing uh, stage at this point in time with regards to uh, Swedish and Finnish uh, threats to uh, veto for their accession into NATO. I mean, uh, when we face uh, issues like this, it's always good to have like a theoretical, uh, you know, uh, background to fall back on, to interpret events or or otherwise, uh, you know, you would, in a sense, uh, kind of um, exaggerate even the meaning uh, of a statement, of a meaning of, um, of an event, even though it is significant. 
at the same time, when you have that theoretical background, it gives you uh, more room to interpret things uh, from a historical um, perspective. Great. Rich? <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be brief on, on this point, because I, I think uh, the impact of Ukraine is pretty simple to conceptualize in, in terms of um, how Turkey relates to the West. It, you can look at uh, Turkish relations with the West in the 20th and 21st centuries as a sine wave. And the sine wave is driven by a sense of threat. When that threat comes from the East, Turkey tacks towards the West. And so it, it's actually two sort of out of sync sine waves. And when things are better with the West, they're worse with the East and, and vice versa. So the, the Soviets made a big mistake in 1940, 41, 42, uh, when Molotov came and threatened uh, the, Turkey and said, we need a base on the Straits and we need you to break your defense relationship with Great Britain. And we need the, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the three Eastern Vilayats back. That drove Turkey directly to the West. Now, the problem for the U.S. since uh, the end of the Cold War is that we became the disruptive and threatening factor on Turkey's borders. As NATO looked for external missions and as the United States embarked on upon a uh, program of democratization, especially for the Middle East, right, which some refer to as the Greater Middle East Project, but certainly trying to intervene in Libya and Syria and Iraq in a ways that would, would bring a different form of government, but naively without the willingness to stay and, and to actually build institutions to do that. This badly destabilized Turkey's borders. So we had, we had a Turkey as of you know, 2010, 11, 12, that had to look around its uh, periphery and say, look, we've got Americans now that encouraged an uprising in Syria that they didn't support. And now we have chaos in Syria that they invaded to establish something stronger. PKK, is not solving the problems in the South Caucasus uh, by allowing the 30-year occupation of the 20% uh, of Azerbaijan's territory to continue. So we, the United States and the West, in a sense, became the proximate threat on Turkey's borders. Mm -hmm. And this led to a huge uh, campaign of balancing and hedging. Mm -hmm. Not new. <laughs> you go back. The, the Rich, first you, Rich, you are cutting off. Um, so we are getting like intermittent um, connection with you, I think. Okay. Uh, do you hear me now? Yeah, we can hear you now. Yeah. Okay. So I'll, I'll restate the basic point. The, okay. the, the U.S. in the last 15, 20 years became a proximate threat to the security of Turkey's borders. Mm -hmm. And that caused Turkey to rebalance and rehedge towards mm -hmm. the Russians. It's not a new pattern. If you go back to the 20s, the 30s, uh, it, you know, in the 20th century, this was actually what's going on. Ukraine mm -hmm. is a pivotal change in that because Russia, through its new revanchism, by trying to re essentially ex extinguish Ukrainian independence, has become a critical threat, not just to Ukraine, but to the independence of small countries throughout the Black Sea Basin, including Georgia, including Azerbaijan, and threatening uh, Turkey's interests in the Black Sea region as well. So this is a critical geopolitical point that is driving Turkey, even though it needs to maintain positive relations with Russia, uh, driving it into further uh, synchronization with the West. And and to me, that's the real importance of what's happened for Ukraine. Ukraine must survive for Turkey to re able to balance against Russia.
Okay, um, thank you very much. Um, now we have actually a lot of questions. Um, so I will ask you, what I will do is I will ask um, three questions uh, and um, you can choose whichever question you want to answer and we will have to um, go through these as quickly as possible because we have only 30 minutes left. So there are a couple of questions about um, kicking Turkey out of NATO um, uh, due to uh, human rights concerns. Um, and listening to uh, Genjar uh, and also Rich, um, one question that came to my mind um, is about uh, NATO uh, being um, a democratic uh, group of um, states. Was NATO ever, because um, Genjar was saying that uh, NATO was never interested in democratic backsliding or military interventions um, in Turkey. And um, at the moment as well, I mean, uh, the credentials uh, of uh, some members in terms of democracy uh, can be put into dispute. Um, so taking all of that into consideration, uh, should we classify Turkey as a, a sorry, of NATO as a, 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 a as a community uh, of democratic states, and on that basis, um, should uh, treatment of Turkey within NATO be different? So that would be the first question. Um, the second question is asking it from the uh, from a reverse, like why Turkey is not leaving NATO. So one is like, can, should NATO uh, kick Turkey out, and then the other is, uh, should Turkey leave uh, NATO? And um, so the question is uh, from Hani Altaleb. Being part of the NATO, its members expect Turkey to act in a certain way, which mainly looks like following orders, while being turned down when Turkey's security is at stake. Why does Turkey still think that being part of the NATO is beneficial when joining other alliances with non-NATO actors could be more strategic? And there are also other questions in the list uh, that ask, for instance, uh, about the collective security treaty organization. So would those alternative organizations be better? Um, and then the third question is about um, a, you know, public opinion uh, in Turkey vis-a-vis uh, -vis NATO and the US. Um, so it's, uh, is, uh, it was asked by Yılın uh, Karagül. Um, so he's asking if there is a chance that the reason for opposition to NATO and America in the public is due to the consequences of Gladio, Ergenekon, and fears that NATO used uh, certain groups like Bozkurs uh, to fund terror in Turkey uh, historically. Um, I guess this, these types of theories are abundant um, among uh, the Turkish public. Uh, how much truth uh, is uh, in there in terms of like supporting various uh, terrorist groups within Turkey? And um, if these are just conspiracy theories, why, uh, I would ask, there's such a belief in them um, in the public. So like I said, I mean, you can um, choose whichever question you want to answer, uh, but I will ask you to be as brief as possible. Uh, let's uh, go in the reverse order now. Let's start with Rich uh, Oya and Genjar, yeah? <laughs> okay, great. Well, look, I, I think that NATO is not uh, always a community of values. It is always a community of strategic interest. And when they, uh, so Portugal was a military democracy, uh, military dictatorship at a certain point, as was Greece. They were both allowed back in. I think uh, Greece was out for a little while. France pulled out of the military uh uh, command structure for a while. Turkey's had its problems. All of the countries, uh, or most of them in NATO, have had coups. They've had foreign adventures. They've had some democratic shortcomings. 
And at any given time, and, and especially in light, uh, to be self-critical as an American, of the war in Iraq, uh, that, that we did not have broad international support to lead, to claim uh, that the United States has a values litmus test and that when we fall short of those values, our allies should not stick with us, uh, violates the understanding of what an alliance is. An alliance means we will not go to war with you. We, we will not attack you and we will take your uh, security seriously. NATO, uh, leaving aside the issue of Turkey, has a, a, um, a double standard here when it comes to the PKK because that, the PKK is a threat to Turkey's security. And as long as uh, Tur- the rest of NATO does not take that seriously, including Sweden and Finland, uh, and the U.S. has des- designated uh, PKK as a foreign terror organization but funds its Syrian franchise, the YPG, then how can we look at Turkey and say, because of your democratic shortcomings, you, you don't de- de- deserve to stay in the alliance? I think that the security dimension has to weigh heavier than the democratic uh, identity dimension of the alliance. Now, it would be great for us all to be perfect democratic societies, and we should push one another towards that, and there's other tools to do that. But I guess my, the answer to my question, uh, the answer to the question from my perspective is no, there should, Turkey should not be kicked out of, of NATO because of democratic shortcomings. We should all work with Turkey to, speak, and, I, and I don't deny that there are Turkish, as a friend of Turkey, there are democratic shortcomings. And by the way, we have those in many countries of the West. But kicking a country out is not the way to deal with them. I'll, I'll be vulgar here for a second. The, the, in the U.S. military, we have a, a, an old saying, it's better to have someone inside the tent peeing out than outside the tent peeing in. What I mean by that is to say that if someone is going to do something you don't like, it's better to still have them within the community and so that you can deal with it by shared standards and at least shared aspirations. And the other thing is... Turkey should not leave NATO either, because at a minimum, first of all, organizations offer very little value, and they are uh, they they're not nothing like NATO, which is the most successful military alliance in the history of the world. But at a minimum, whatever happens in Iraq, Syria, or or anywhere else, as a NATO ally, Turkey will not be attacked by the United States and the other members of NATO. That's important because some of the things that have happened. And some of the discussion here has reflected on that. The antipathy in Ankara and Istanbul and other Turkish cities towards the West is high. The antipathy in the West towards Turkey is high. To have something to arrest that antipathy, which is a formal alliance, means that we will not go to war. That alone is worth both sides staying in. Oh, yeah? Yes, I would like to echo Rich's uh, wonderful points on that and remind our audiences that uh, kicking out of NATO uh, mechanisms don't exist as per the Washington Treaty of 1949. Uh, so um, a, a member can voluntarily withdraw from an organ from the organization from the alliance, but they cannot be kicked out. So uh, this really eliminates the possibility of the first question that you addressed to us, yeah, Prague, and uh, Secondly, uh, Turkey, as I also cover in the book, uh, uh, has made multiple threats of joining Shanghai Cooperation Organization um, in, uh, instead of uh, EU membership, or uh, sometimes it was posed as an alternative to NATO as well. But the Turkish authorities that I spoke to has always emphasized the benefits of the NATO membership for Turkey when it comes to its immediate neighborhood, when it comes 
to its relations with the Balkans, for instance, when it comes to its relations with the African countries, North African countries. So it is certainly a leverage for Turkish foreign policy that Turkey is a member of this strongest alliance in the contemporary international affairs, the most successful one indeed. And uh, it also gives certain security guarantees through the Musketeer Clause, Article 5, that, you know, one for all, all for one. And Turkey has benefited from that multiple uh, in multiple episodes in its uh, history. So I think that it is too important and too valuable as an asset uh, for Turkey to simply ignore or let go of. So, and the Turkish authorities are quite cognizant of that fact as well. Thank you. Gencer? Um, I, I, I agree with uh, Oya's points. And of course, there is no mechanisms to kick out members uh, out of NATO. This is one thing. And uh, Greece and uh, uh, France withdrew uh, uh, from the military wing of the uh, uh, of the. Uh, organization. But uh, one thing is obvious. I mean, I agree with uh, Rich and Oya that uh, Turkish authorities, I mean, including uh, the AK Party administration, they have no uh, intention to leave NATO because the benefits are uh, uh, very, uh, I mean, in comparison to the uh, disadvantages, advantages weigh uh, much, much higher, much heavier than the disadvantages. This is one thing. And second thing, perhaps we would like to remember a couple of incidents, I mean, that we have had uh, in uh, the recent past. I mean, one, uh, uh, I mean, that uh, incidents that uh, Turkish authorities uh, asked, the, asked NATO to come to the assistance of Turkey. And one of them was Mavi Marmara incident in uh, May, not, uh, May t- uh, 2010, right? Uh, when the, uh, the Israeli uh, uh, commandos raided the Freedom Flotilla. Uh, at the time, uh, at the time, Foreign Minister uh, Davutoglu uh, applied to NATO and called the uh, uh, NATO uh, uh, Council uh, to meet. And uh, another example, interesting example, that it, which is, I think, a, a very telling example. Uh, to keep in mind that, uh, you know, when Turkey downed Su-24 uh, jet fighter, Russian fighter, in uh, November 2015, it's exactly, again, this time he was a prime minister, once again, he called uh, NATO to come to help of Turkey. So, I mean, uh, uh, so these are, the, these are the, you know, the recent examples that Turkey is, I mean, uh, uh, is aware of the, uh, you know, the, 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 the contribution that uh, uh, NATO can uh, uh, provide for Turkey. Although in both cases, uh, NATO said no to Turkish demands, but this is, you know, uh, reflecting or indicating the Turkey's, uh, uh, say, um, uh, importance uh, that the Turkish authorities attach to uh, NATO. This is one thing. And of course, there are uh, uh, many parties uh, uh, you know, uh, calling for the withdrawal from NATO, etc., etc. Uh, but I think we can, we should uh, consider those people as the, or what they do as the radicalism of the important, as I call, right? So I mean, uh, they have no, uh, uh, say, possibility to come to power. So they say, I mean, the most radical, they demand most radical demands, etc. 
And one question about the Gladio issue, it's very uh, uh, significant. I mean, this is one of the points that I originally planned to include my uh, uh, introductory speech. Of course, this, uh, uh, you know, the Gladio stay behind uh, issues are very important. And then these are the dark corners of the uh, relationship between Turkey and, and, and NATO. And in many uh, member countries, in European countries, these issues are uh, uh, you know, revealed and uh, you know, the documents are declassified and the public was enlightened, etc., etc. But the Turkey is now having no, uh, uh, say, uh, kind of uh, information, public information provided by the authorities. And last point that I would like to uh, say about the uh, about the uh, uh, PKK relationship, it's of course, I totally agree with Rich. I mean, that uh, the Americans are trying to convince uh, uh, um, about the, the you know, the, you know, this differentiate to differentiate PKK from uh, PYD is a, is, a, is a funny thing. It's not convincing at all. Um, uh, however, I mean, Again, uh, the Americans are in a, a kind of uh, transactional relationship with PKK, right? I mean, I always tell my students, right, you know, the, 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 the heaviest blow that the PKK received in its history. I asked the question, what's the heaviest blow that the uh, organization received uh, uh, in its history? I mean, it's obvious, the apprehension of uh, Abdullah Öcalan in 1990. And then it was a CIA operation. We all know that it's, uh, he was packed by the CIA and, and delivered to Turkey. So, I mean, how do we see, I mean, the, the, the change in uh, the American attitudes? So on the one hand, you see, I mean, in order to gain the confidence of Turkey before the operation uh, in Iraq, right? And then the he, the Americans delivered Abdullah Hojalan to Turkey. But on the other hand, now uh, uh, they have been in business uh, with PKK. So this is a kind of this is a kind of transaction transactional affair, and again I uh, agree with Rich that you know uh, the Americans would find a way. I mean both sides, both Americans and Turks, uh, would find um, uh, uh, you know a um, a way to uh, reach a, a sort of uh, agreement to to sort out this problem. Last point, last point, and that uh, uh, you know we are now heading towards a very uh, you know, run up to uh, very uh, critical elections, and probably, probably, according to polls, uh, Erdogan's AK Party administration is going to terminate. So, in that regard, I think we have to keep in mind uh, when we say Turkey, which Turkey we are talking about in a year time. Turkey is will be different. Turkey might be different than the Turkey uh, than uh, the, the Turkey uh, we have uh, uh, we have now. I and mean, this is something to that. Uh, so. Great, uh, thank you very much. Uh, so we have 15 uh, minutes left and um, we have um, several questions uh, on the Eastern Mediterranean. So I will uh, pose them um, together um, and then perhaps add uh, a different uh, question um, into the mix. Uh, so uh, Eleni Palazidou, uh, Özgür Kuşçu and uh, Anthony, uh, sorry, Anthony uh, Vellion. Uh, apologies if I'm mispronouncing your names. Uh, they're kind of all asking uh, questions about um, Turkey's foreign policy um, with regards to Greece and uh, Cyprus. Uh, it is very difficult uh, to summarize very quickly, uh, but then I guess uh, from one perspective, um, Turkey looks quite uh, threatening and menacing uh, towards Greece. 
and uh, quite um, adamant um, in its approach um, to Cyprus. Uh, so what would you say about that? Maybe you can uh, quickly summarize, uh, you know, um, Turkey's stance in that sense. Um, but uh, there's also the question of um, the US now shifting some of its bases uh, to Greece. Um, so within the NATO alliance, there is this like uh, historical uh, kind of belief that um, the US would always favor Turkey uh, when it came to Greek-Turkish affairs. So at the moment, it feels like that's changing a bit. And so they're allying or um, they are uh, kind of cooperating with Greece more because uh, let's say they cannot really trust um, Turkey or because of the uh, relations. Um, so is it possible for that dynamic to change in the near future? Or can we assume that the US would continue to um, you know, um, ally more strongly with Greece? And um, I guess the, there's also the question of um, uh, uh, Cyprus's membership in the EU and whether that has an impact uh, on uh, Turkish-NATO relations. Although, of course, um, you know, it is not directly related, uh, but then um, it is an important issue uh, in terms of NATO-EU cooperation, for instance. Does that change, uh, let's say, um, European perceptions um, towards uh, Turkey? So those will be the Eastern Mediterranean questions. Um, because we're running out of time, and I really wanted to ask this question, um, Hani uh, Altaleb is asking, um, Turkey is a Muslim-majority country with growing power, and it will always be viewed this way by NATO members. Uh, so does this partially explain the continued debate on considering it as an unreliable partner? So this is a good question in the sense that, I mean, we have established that NATO is not uh, a value-based uh, normative uh, community, uh, but Turkey happens to be the only Muslim country in NATO. Uh, so do you think that that plays uh, a role? And uh, with the AKP, there was another question in the list. With the AKP in power, um, perhaps um, has that uh, influenced uh, Turkey's uh, uh, NATO relations more um, because of um, the AKP's um, more conservative uh, outlook. Uh, so, ladies first. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> for the Thank last you, round. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so uh, I am. I have to uh, acknowledge something here. I'm working on my third book right now. I was at Harvard University as a visiting uh, scholar there uh, last semester, working on this book on Eastern Mediterranean mm -hmm. balance of power. So I think I will be in good shape to answer the questions on that. Um, I identify the Eastern Mediterranean as a powder keg, uh, a title that belonged to the Balkans back in the 1990s, but I think that it rightfully belongs to the Eastern Mediterranean in the 2020s, because we have seen really this emerging return of uh, geopolitical and strategic competition in the region and, you know, and Turkish authorities felt more and more cornered and isolated in the region, whereas the uh, Republic of Cyprus, Greece, has uh, engaged in multiple alliances with Egypt, United Arab Emirates, uh, Israel, and so on and so forth. Uh, and we have seen the creation of East Med uh, Gas Forum uh, back in 19, 
sorry, 2019, and we have seen uh, recently the U.S. authorities uh, actually declaring the pipeline project to be quite unfeasible due to the costs and the projection in terms of its timeline, construction of a uh, timeline. And uh, we have seen uh, the, uh, the tensions uh, have been on the rise ever since hydrocarbon resources were uh, uh, discovered um, off the coast of Cyprus in 2011. And Turkey's immediate goal was to make sure that the Turkish Cypriots' interests would be protected as well as uh, the Greek Cypriot interests. So Turkey serving as a guarantor uh, state uh, based on that uh, 1960 um, uh, constitution. So we have seen uh, Turks uh, act in that capacity and increasingly engage in uh, gunboat uh, diplomacy with the uh, you know, escorting of the hydrocarbon uh, drilling ships with the Turkish Navy. And uh, there have been certain skirmishes between uh, Turkish uh, Navy and uh, Greek and French navies on the other uh, side uh, back in the summer of 2020. And that is a very, very uh, volatile situation, right? Because you have three NATO allies that were involved in these skirmishes. And uh, obviously, at the time, the US uh, interest was focused elsewhere as well. So uh, because of this, you know, um, uh, reluctance to be involved in Middle Eastern Mediterranean affairs. So that really ensured that the United States didn't really play a mediating role there. So Thankfully, Merkel's government was involved in order to broker a sort of an agreement between Turkey and uh, uh, Greece uh, primarily, and NATO's deconfliction uh, mechanisms kicked in as well, and uh, Stoltenberg basically played a very important role, bringing the two parties together to resume the exploratory talks. Uh, however, just last week, we have seen the exploratory talks, unfortunately, getting, um, you you know, uh, you know, uh, coming to a conclusion uh, ending uh, by the Turkish authorities. So uh, you can see that uh, that nervousness is there. But the fact that Turkey is a member of NATO really provides that security guarantee and perhaps a peace of mind for the uh, countries in the region that they are not going to get involved in a particular hot conflict between the two NATO allies. And the important thing is... Um, uh, uh, the Cyprus's membership in EU certainly complicates the relationship between EU and NATO, as I discuss in my book as well. Uh, they played uh, outside veto players against the other uh, counterpart institutions. So uh, Turkey being in NATO and outside of the EU uh, poses a veto for uh, the official coordination of security information exchange between NATO on the one hand and the European Union on the other hand. And the same is true for Cyprus, uh, being a member of EU and not even a member of the Partnership for Peace mechanism of NATO. You see the tensions there, which really is reflected really negatively at the institutional level when it comes to taking important strategic decisions for coordination, interinstitutional coordination between the two institutions. So it certainly adds to the complexity. But thankfully, there is some creative thinking on 
on the part of both the NATO uh, and the uh, EU policymakers that on the field, uh, whenever the two institutions coexist in the in a particular operation side by side, uh, there is field uh, coordination between the representative staff uh, in the field. So that somehow uh, gets around the uh, inter-institutional veto um, and lack of coordination at the official level. Okay, perfect. Genjar, two minutes. Okay. <laughs> uh, you muted yourself. Okay. Um, well, in two minutes, uh, um, uh, um, uh, instead of saying many things, I would like to say one uh, point that uh, you raised and uh, also Rich talked about. So with all due respect, uh, I would differ from uh, what Rich said uh, about uh, NATO. And I checked uh, uh, a book on the you know, enlargement uh, of NATO uh, after, the, uh, after the Cold War in mid-1990s. NATO produced a checklist for the, uh, you know, the uh, new members. And uh, in that uh, checklist, there were um, five basic criteria. An established democracy, respect for human rights, a market-based economy, armed forces under civilian control, and good relations with neighboring states. So my question is, is simple. Had Turkey been a candidate country in mid-1990s for the membership NATO, would it be eligible? So, I mean, my question, my answer to my question it would be a no. But uh, on the other hand, I agree with Rich that, you know, the NATO is not, it's, it's a living institution, right? So it's uh, 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 exposed to uh, global currents, uh, international relations, crisis, etc., etc. So then, you know, uh, uh, time to time, it's uh, uh, evolution takes uh, some, you know, other directions or becomes a kind of different organization, uh, which is uh, uh, sometimes becoming more value-based or sensitive to values. And let's hope together that in the uh, you know, coming years, uh, NATO will be uh, more interested in, uh, you know, such democratic values. This is what I would like to say. And about the, uh, about the uh, Eastern Mediterranean, um, uh, again, uh, I would differ from uh, my colleague Oya that, uh, you know, in the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, if you uh, uh, use the metaphor of uh, powder keg, right, uh, I'm afraid there is no enough powder in the keg. So the, uh, uh, there is no natural gas around, uh, uh, around uh, uh, say, Cyprus. Uh, uh, well, uh, uh, this makes a lot of difference, and therefore, therefore, uh, we better uh, not to, uh, how should I say, exaggerate the tension uh, 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 that Turkey is a part. Turkey is, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, creating, and most of the time, uh, I mean, uh, the Turkey's actions should be considered as part of. Uh, the power strategies that Erdogan is uh, following to hold on to power. So, I mean, uh, so far, I mean, uh, uh, he is masterfully uh, instrumentalized any issue to portray himself as an international leader, uh, as a leader of international magnitude, etc., etc. So, just then, uh, uh, as an answer, was a response uh, uh, comment on what Oya said. 
Okay, excellent. Uh, so uh, I will uh, give the floor to Rich uh, for around uh, two minutes. If you want, you can reply to Genjar uh, or answer the questions. Sure. Well, just on the issue of Turkey and, and uh, NATO and values, look, I, I was a lieutenant, 22 years old, working with Turks. I was uh, in my 20s and 30s working with Palestinians, with Afghans, with Iraqis, many different. When you're trying to build camaraderie and when you're trying to build shared values uh, between people from different institutions, and uh, NATO is a military institution at the end of the day, you don't get anywhere by saying, hey, you know what? You don't belong. You, you don't smell like us. You don't look like us. You're not democratic enough. So the community of values is always aspirational. You know, you know NATO, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have an as a, a community of values with the NATO. What I'm saying is, you know, look at, look at now, if, if, you're of, if you're of a liberal mind, Poland and Hungary and Turkey don't smell right. They, they, they smell far too conservative. And may, frankly, maybe the UK. The UK, probably. <laughs> Maybe the United States. And, and, yeah. And, and so on, on the other hand, if you're uh, from a conservative bent, you, you, which Turkey is, you get to looking at countries like Sweden and, and Finland and you're like, whoa, you guys are way out on accepting radicalism. There has to be a mechanism for reconciling that, but you can't lead with that. Pretty. Mm. Uh, requirements and priorities, because that's that's what a military alliance is. Now, on the Eastern Med stuff, I, as I, I'm going to quote somebody here who knows history better than me by, by saying that since 1821, which I guess the foundation of, the, uh, of, of uh, independent Greece, between Greece and Turkey, one of those two countries has tried to invade the other. Um, and, and it's not Turkey that has, has tried to invade Greece, you know, the whole Migali Ide and, and all that. I, I think that Greece, as I said earlier, has reasons as a smaller country to be con concerned. But Turkey clearly has no realistic expansionist program with regards to, to Greece. They don't want to take the islands back. They don't want to take the Thrace back. What they want is a revision of the division of, of uh, whatever hydrocarbon assets are there and some sort of demarcation that's not uh, entirely prejudicial to Turkish interests in the Eastern Med and the Aegean. I, I don't blame Greece for doing what they're doing. I don't blame the uh, uh, Turkey for doing what they're doing. They're both playing hardball in a difficult area. I think this is an utter and abject failure of U.S. leadership. We need win-win for Greece and Turkey in both of these places. And it, needs, it begins with maritime demarcation. But the U.S. has sort of abdicated on this point for right now uh, for a couple of reasons. And I suspect that it will continue to avoid a leadership role until there's a, a government um, in Ankara that it finds less uh, objectionable. Because the truth is neither Democrats nor Republicans really like uh, the AKP, and, and they don't want to be perceived as giving them any favors. Okay. Excellent. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it was uh, a great pleasure. It has been a great pleasure uh, to have the opportunity uh, for me and I think for everyone in the audience uh, to listen to our speakers uh, today. Um, we have uh, indeed covered a lot of ground. Um, there were also other questions. We couldn't uh, actually find the time to go over them. Uh, apologies if your question was not asked. Uh, but come uh, to another event uh, organized by the Contemporary Turkish Studies and the European Institute. Follow us uh, on Twitter and uh, go to our uh, website and visit um, our events page. Uh, thank you to our speakers uh, for such an excellent discussion again, and to all of you in the audience uh, for listening and for contributing by asking uh, your questions. Good night. Thank you for listening. 
you can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.